1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Christoph Wodiniec, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Alex Panasenko, author of The Long Vacation, his memoir of the Second World War, published last year by Iris Press. Hi, Alex. Hi. I'd like to add on a personal note that I met Alex 30 years ago when I had the privilege of being his biology student at Berkeley High School in California. (laughs) Um, When Alex was born in 1933, his native Ukraine was devastated by Stalin's program of starvation, the Holodomor. Millions were murdered through starvation, somewhere between 3 and 10 millions. Then came Stalin's political purges, killing some hundreds of thousands, deporting millions more and eviscerating the Soviet officer corps just in time for Hitler's 1941 invasion when Alex was about 8 years old. This book is about the next four years, a coming-of-age story when Alex and his family were deported by the Nazis for slave labor and the story moves you west, along with him and his family, until the war ends beyond. I think there's a saying from Malawi, perhaps, that when elephants fight, it is the grass that suffers. And there's two, no nastier elephants that I can think of than Hitler and Stalin. A male born in the Ukraine in 1933 had the life expectancy of seven and a half years. And here you are in 2021. You <laughs> also write that you are not sure you'd like to be called a survivor. Why not? Well, it's so very passive,
0: you know. I mean, no doubt I am a survivor. However, I would like to think, you know, that uh, that maybe I had something to do
1: with it, you know, the masculine bit. Well, give us a, would you please read to us from the first part of, of chapter two? I think it will give our listeners a, a really good idea of your, of your narrative and your prose.
0: That winter was the absolute low point of my life. There were others to follow, being in a labor camp and being dumped by wives and lovers without whom one tasted a terrible desolation. But those were things that happened to a very large number of normal people. What occurred in a winter of 41-42 in a couple of cities like Leningrad and Kharkov was reserved for the elect. Of course, I was too young, too insignificant to have been one of the elect. I, in any event, liked the sort of arrogance, the sort of gall that it would take to claim the place of job on a dunghill. But I must have stood somewhere near the elect when their fate was cast, and some of it settled on me. The day after the Germans took the city, I walked to find the streets outside shrouded in autumnal fog. Echoing through the fog, I heard an ominous sound that was to be a part of my life for the next four years, the clacking of hobnailed Wehrmacht boots on cobblestone streets. I scrambled outside to observe the source of the sound. They appeared like creatures of the fog emerging from the mist. They usually patrolled in pairs, outfitted with steel helmets, unfamiliar weapons, gray uniforms, and black cartridge belts. On the backs of the belts were small bags and flat bayonets. They were cylindrical fluted steel containers, which I was later to learn contained gas masks. Their faces were mostly distant and grim. They were immediately different, unmistakably alien. Compared to our soldiers, they were neater, cleaner, better equipped, better disciplined, and far less human. Years later, I discovered myself acting in a distant and alien manner to other people in another war. So maybe the Germans were as human as we were, or perhaps they were merely as efficient at teaching as they seem to be at everything else. Certainly, they had more effect on my development than did any other group, and perhaps they still do. These advancing German troops replaced the retreating Soviet troops. Long lines of German horse carts replaced long lines of Russian horse carts, all moving east. Since water and electric facilities had been blown up by the retreating Russians, lines formed for the few surviving wells that were still functional. The civilian population needed the water for drinking, the Germans needed it for their horses, This led to conflicts of interest. My father, while standing in line, observed a Russian who also had been waiting for several hours, finally get his bucket of water. A German walked up to him and tried to take it from him. The Russian refused. The German unceremoniously shot the Russian and calmly watered his horses. Germans were not only efficient, they also loved animals. Uh,
1: This work is... Beautifully written, but the things you endured are ugly as hell and very raw. And there's something about a child's account of of World War II with all the crazy things the adults did. I don't know how many we have. I can think of Anne Frank, who sort of remained a child because she was hidden away, and Yezzeh Koshinsky, who certainly did not because of all the horrors he saw. You see, people here, or I should say there now, I
0: guess it's just a difference in time. But all these adjectives that are being thrown around, you know, ugly and uh, and inhuman and all that. Back then, that was normal. See, that was just how
1: things were. That was normal life. Was there a time when you you remember seeing these things first as a younger child, maybe in a period of, of famine, or it was all always... well,
0: originally? Originally, uh, I was shocked by things, but then. Uh, in that part of the book, when I'm describing walking through town during the battle, and I see these three Russians hanging out the back of their self-propelled gun and burning, uh, I did not perceive this as particularly frightening. Uh, I was curious. I, I you know, hadn't realized that people could burn.
1: That. Yeah, so all all rules seem suspended, which that too has Absolutely. a child feeling. Absolutely, yeah. you're submerged yeah. in a completely, totally different reality. Is that why it's the long vacation?
0: Well, I call it the long vacation because the war started during the first week that I was in grammar school. And then I did not go back to school until 1947. And that's the period that I describe. So that's uh, why I called it the long vacation.
1: So do you find, maybe it's a dumb question, but do you find that you were um, accustomed and acculturated to this, this wildness?
0: Totally. When I first came over here in 1949, I thought that people here were a little bit strange. <laughs> it took me uh, several years to really admit to myself that it was I
1: who was a little bit strange. I mean, normalcy, after all, is a function of numbers. Yeah, that's true. And also because the Americans hadn't had a war on their own soil in a long time. So, yes,
0: yes, of course.
1: But you feel uh, kinship to GIs who would come back and, uh, you know, I have had a very comfortable life, <laughs> I must admit. But, I, you know, when you read, for example, William Manchester in the Pacific War, he talks about after killing some Japanese on, on an island, he goes into a cave and he has this apparition of the whore of death. And she's covered in maggots. And it's, it's, it's terror and violence and lust in one being and i think you talk about when you were eight years old terror hunger and lust shaped shaped your days oh absolutely
0: absolutely it's pretty much what kept me alive uh, otherwise i would have just sort of sunken into a into a torpor and died like a lot of people did
1: and so yeah you when you meet um, and interrupt me anytime, but when you meet up with your family again after being separated for some time, you have adapted into a different creature. Completely. Yeah. Completely. I I saw them
0: as losers. And, uh, well, you know, I supported them. I went on the black market. I kept them alive. Um, I am still not certain whether it was a good thing or not that I ran into them after the war. If I had not... Uh, being the being that I was at the time, being the creature that I was at the time, I might have become some sort of mighty entrepreneur, you know, and uh, married lots of movie actresses and been wealthy uh, instead of uh, being sucked back into into this middle-class
1: uh, lifestyle. Uh, did you ever adapt back to the middle-class lifestyle or not? Really? Not completely, yeah. So tell us, um, summarize for our listeners, what happened when you were separated from your family until you, I mean, that's the most of the book, but sort of so we understand how many times were you uh, on your own and how, where did you find survival? Well, actually
0: I was not on my own for that long. It was just uh, several months. But uh, the effect was incredible uh, because uh, suddenly I was liberated from the tyranny of parents, from the tyranny of organized society. And I was put into a completely different milieu. And uh, I realized that really there was only I. I was central. Everything else was pretty much a dream. And I had to see to myself I had to create my own ethos, I had to create my own set of rules, my own morals, if you will, by which to survive. And I realized that, uh, well, being a kid, right, I was uh, 11 years old, and I realized that uh, children were tyrannized by their parents, by society. Uh, I guess I became an anarchist of sorts, and I viewed the adults, the adult world as the enemy, because after all, it was the adults that started the war. It was the adults that were doing all the killing, all the bombing, uh, all, you know, starving of people. And I felt like the war was a war of adults against children and uh, started dreaming about organizing children into a mighty army, right? <laughs> and conquering the adult world.
1: Well, one thing that's not in in the book is uh, much about your own childhood back in their family before all of this happens. And we meet your brother, I think, when you meet him again uh, in, I think it might be Austria. But tell us what it was like before everything fell apart. Well, both of my parents were
0: university professors Uh, My mother was a total liberal and I suppose a feminist. Uh, My father came from a Cossack family who were famous in their district for being sort of homicidal nuts. And uh, he raised me the way he was raised. When uh, he was a child, he was (laughs) jumping. All the boys were racing horses and they were jumping him over a ravine and his horse fell in and broke its legs, and he broke his leg. And so uh, in order to punish him for this, uh, his father just let him crawl around the hut all night long with a broken leg. So, uh, you know, he was raised in a, in that that sort of a culture. So uh, he used to beat me a lot. It would have been more or less okay if... Uh, there had been a reason for it, but sometimes there was no reason for it. He just you know let loose and beat me up so uh, I held that against him for practically until the day he died,
1: and that was normal
0: yeah that was that was considered normal, yeah
1: yeah so right, so if every boy in your class has the same home life you're you're like that's just the way things are, well.
0: Not all of them. I mean, uh, some of them, not all of them had crazy fathers, you know.
1: Yeah. And, and your mom, your mother, the feminist? Uh, my mother was uh, Polish. Her last name
0: was Jaskulska. And uh, her father came supposedly from, uh, from lower level Polish nobility. And she was a very genteel woman, she, um, she was wonderful, really. Except as I said, you know, she was a liberal and a feminist.
1: Well, yeah, in I think in Poland there's something like ten percent <laughs> of people who are who, <laughs> well, you know who dig potatoes with gloves on. That's how you know that they are right,
0: right, right, more.
1: right. <laughs> um, And uh, so this is the Soviet Union. You don't, you don't. Uh, is there talk of times? You know, do you feel occupied by the Russians or this is just the way it has always been? Well, I was raised to consider the Polacks,
0: the Russians, and the uh, Tartars to be my traditional enemies.
1: Yeah. So you are a Cossack through and through. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that yeah. goes back yeah. to
0: those upper Russian Cossacks, right? Yes.
1: Yes. And they all, I, I, you know, certainly uh, Poland and I'm sure the others consider the Ukraine their natural domain. So it's a well, tough neighborhood. We're having, we're having
0: right? yes. I, I can see it from the Polish side as well. Yes.
1: Um, so I think that in, really informs a bit of the story that uh, you know chaos and violence is, is nothing new. How about the hunger? You talk about a, uh, yes. a well timed yes. bag we're of alfalfa. Totally,
0: you're totally completely preoccupied with the idea of food. And in fact, to some degree, I still am. You know, I got like 50 pounds of beans stored away for, for the next famine. So uh, it, uh, it does change you. Uh, I described this old woman who used to show up at our house and uh, watch us eat, right, during the famine. And then she started talking about how nice, how nice and plump I was. And my father chased her out the house and she died on our doorstep. Uh, she was totally crazed, you know. She was just mm-hmm. sitting there drooling like a dog.
1: So, yeah, it was. You bring us back to Hansel and Gretel, I think. Is those were not <laughs> as, <it was> not.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Hansel and Gretel ate the witch, which is yeah. you know not generally told in your in in your politically correct fairy tales. But in the original fairy tale, they throw in the oven and bake her and eat her.
1: In in your. Town, and I think this is where you're separated when your father is uh, working somewhere in the big city and you're in the small town, and the Germans execute some prisoners. Those prisoners end up as cat meat or dog meat, so called. That
0: was in the big city, that was in Kharkov. And uh, in fact, Sally, who did a lot of research on my book and uh, actually, you know, found factual supports for some of the things I write about. Yeah, she found a picture of these people hanging off a balcony in Kharkov. So the Germans would hang them. Uh, what would happen, uh, they would uh, go down the street and take somebody out of every tenth house. And then they would keep them for two weeks as hostages. And if during that time somebody killed a German, they would take 10 of these guys out and hang them off a balcony. And so uh, then by you know, next day, they'd be cut down, and even though there were orders against it, and people would be selling this pink hamburger that they said was dog meat. But, of course, everybody knew that it was not dog meat. It was hostage meat.
1: Yeah, and the, and the, the dog meat is a fig leaf to cover... Right, right. Yeah. Absolutely, uh, yes. absolutely. So, uh, how about Germans? Do Germans have this uh, tradition or are they aliens from outer space from a very different background when they show up, in addition to the fact that they love their animals? <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes, well, that was, yeah, that was me being funny. Yes. Although they do, they, they really do and uh I I'm a dog owner now, and feeling the way I do about dogs, I'd rather eat hostages than dogs.
1: <laughs> I but for example, the, um, there was a a German woman on on a train who sort of took you under her yes, wing Yes, attempted yes
0: to...
1: yes she she looked
0: very nice she looked very sympathetic you know very kind so I started helping her carrying her bag but then uh, she starts being all maternal she starts being all parental. And of course, I'm scared shitless of parents and of adults at this point. And it was at this point that I uh, decided to get the hell away from her because uh, she was threatening, you know, to take the place of,
1: of parents. Well, and she, does, you seem to feel like you, you tell her, um, leider bin ich untermensch." Like, unfortunately, I am not fully human. Right? She doesn't understand. And- uh, yes, yes, yes.
0: She she starts coming on all maternal, and I said, unfortunately, I'm a subhuman. Yeah, yeah. Um, which the, was my official designation, right? Untermensch.
1: Yes, and you had a patch on your arm that said Ost. Uh, no, but
0: at this point, I had taken the patch off. It was not uh, we did not wear it on the arm. It was on the, on the left side of our jackets, and it was white and blue, and it said Ost, which meant East which, you know, to, to uh, everybody who knew just meant, you know, untermensch.
1: Did you think the, the did you feel that uh, the Slavic culture with its violence was uh, from a different tradition than these Germans who were coming in, per- perpetrating every kind of violence, but somehow... Uh,
0: well, the thing is, the Soviet government, of course, was was uh, quite violent, too. Um, matter of fact, uh, I remember during the purges, you know, we had these NKVD troopers walking down the street and me and the other kids would run up to them and ask, you know, hey, can we see your gun? How many people did you liquidate? And uh, I played with a lot of kids whose parents had been liquidated and the kids just lived out in on the street. They lived in sewers and basements and whatnot. I was forbidden to talk to them, but of course, I made friends with them and played with them. And I told you about, I wrote about this game we had where we would uh, sit the kid in a chair and start hitting him, screaming, confess, you son of a bitch. And after he'd taken as much as he could, he would say, I confess. And then we'd shoot him in the head with the cap gun. And then it would be somebody somebody else's turn, right, to be the spy. And we were NKVD.
1: Children are almost kids. yeah. You
0: know, these are six and seven year old kids playing this game.
1: But you're almost invisible. You can move in and out of this disastrous world, and walk up to a soldier and and tease him or taunt him or or an old lady yeah. or a
0: an... right right could could not do that with a German and it wasn't just the language. It, there was a cultural difference. Kids did not talk to German soldiers.
1: So, what about being a slave? How did, does that stick with you? Is it burned into your, uh, uh, did it, you know what, it, did you imagine just, it would it
0: end? How about so that? totally burned into me that they still at times have to fight against it.
1: Say, say more about that. Did you imagine it would ever end when you were a child or did you not have a future tense, you know? Well, I never expected to live very long. Uh, I uh,
0: was hoping to live until I was 12. And then especially uh, after the war, when I got rounded up by the MPs at the black market and uh, they gave me a medical checkup and discovered that they had TB. And of course in the camps, TB was a a death sentence. So I was absolutely, totally certain that I was going to die soon. And then Demetha stayed alive and had to cope with life it's very easy when you think that you're going to die because uh, uh, you you just don't have to worry about the future very much
1: focuses the mind as a
0: yeah absolutely honest, you're just focusing on getting <laughs> enough to eat that particular day
1: yeah um well one of the most uh positive parts of this is when you are a black market racketeer at the end of the war uh, you you endure everything you go from place to place. You somehow uh survive the the Stalin, you survive Hitler, you f- you find yourself in Allied uh Ally occupied uh is it Munich or uh Vienna where you are? Uh no, 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 Memmingen. it was a small town called Memmingen. Memmingen which yes. is which
0: is uh in a very picturesque part of Bavaria, beautiful little town and it it survived totally except for the railroad station that got bombed all the shit. But all the railroad stations were.
1: I was there as a tourist in 1997 during Oktoberfest, and it's it was it made me think of every German fairy tale, with its dark forest and its sun sunlit hills and.
0: Yes, yes, and, yes. And, the, and those houses was the timbers on the outside, mm-hmm. and they had you know they have all all these heraldic designs painted
1: on the houses. So here you are in this uh, beautiful medieval German city. You. Uh, you have survived, though we won't call you a survivor, because you were extremely active and cunning in in a child like way. And you suddenly find yourself uh, the possessor of coffee.
0: Yes, I'm suddenly well. Money didn't mean anything. I mean, I was a possessor of food. I was a possessor of cigarettes and liquor and uh, evaporated milk. Those were the three big sellers.
1: It was some accident that a guy said, "Hey, kid." You want some coffee, and then you traded that for the other. Uh, well, people. what
0: happened? What happened was they had the, uh, the Germans had a PW camp nearby that was full of Russian prisoners, and uh, I was walking down the street, and here come these guys in bits and pieces of Soviet uniforms, talking Russian, and uh, I started talking to them. And they said, you know, hey, kid, you know, <laughs> what, what, how come you're here? And I said, well, I was you know, in the German work camp. And they said, why don't you come and visit us in a camp and bring a big bag? So I did. They were getting American army rations. And so they filled the bag up with all kinds of goodies. And I took it back, and gave them to my mother who started handing all this food out to her friends. I I told you, you know, she was a liberal and a feminist. So she started handing all this food out to these other people who, you know, had university degrees and whatnot. And they were terribly judgmental of me because uh, I was, you know, not not a proper uh, European, you know, middle-class boy. Uh, I was pretty wild. So uh, I did this for a while, and uh, the number of her friends increased dramatically because she was giving food out, and uh, then this um, uh, Latvian guy said, how come you're giving all this stuff away? Why don't you sell it on a black market? And just about this time, I went to this uh, PW camp and went to their kitchen. And their cook was opening all these American ration boxes. And one of them is full of of, uh, Nestle cans, right? It had the little nest and birds on it and he sticks a knife in it. And some brown powder comes out and he tastes it. And he says, this is shit. This is coffee. Our people don't drink coffee. Our people drink tea. You want all this shit, kid? And I said, sure. So he gave me all this coffee which was worth its weight in gold because the Germans hadn't had any coffee for years. And they're a nation of coffee drinkers and beer drinkers, of course. So uh, I had all this coffee and I started swapping it for booze from the Germans, booze to the Americans for cigarettes, cigarettes, back to the Germans. It was, it was really a, a going concern. Incidentally, I have never really smoked because uh, I discovered while I was in a camp that smokers, man, they would die for a cigarette. They they would trade their bread ration for a cigarette. It was well uh, after the war. You know, you could you could have any German woman for half a pack of cigarettes.
1: Yeah, I remember uh, in uh, Anne Frank, she collects. Bits of tobacco from sweater pockets and makes it into a cigarette for whoever she's hiding with her uncle or grandpa. Yes, yes. what, what a precious gift that was. And it's hard to imagine in a time now where so few people smoke, at least in the United States. I know people smoke all over the place, but uh, it's. Uh, and I also imagine that as a child who didn't have to smoke yet, why would you ever burn such wealth?
0: Well, of course, when I was a little kid, I tried smoking, and uh, uh, it seemed kind of repulsive. And then one time I, I found a ruble on the street, and I took it to the grocery store and bought a ruble bottle of vodka. And myself and these two other little kids drank the whole damn bottle, and we were found lying passed out in puddles of vomit. <laughs>
1: So this period in Memmingen, did did you say it went to nineteen forty seven?
0: It went to nineteen forty seven.
1: So you were doing and, this yeah. for two
0: years, right? Well, no, because I spent nine months in the sanitarium.
1: Well, you were doing this for is it a, a year?
0: Yeah, I, I did it until I got until I got rounded up uh, by the MPs along with a bunch of other people, and. Uh, uh, I had a gun in my pocket. I was I was packing a twenty five automatic at age twelve, and uh, so uh, the MP who found the gun uh, asked me if I was German. I said no, I'm Russian. So he said, "Oh, okay," and dropped the gun in his pocket, and I got away with it.
1: Yeah, was it a dangerous uh, racket? Uh, well. It was, and uh,
0: some of the other black market dealers went around armed, and so I I was emulating them, right?
1: Yeah, um, talk about, I think you have a special uh, appreciation for firearms. Uh, I I remember fondly when I was in high school, and we went on one of our camping trips, and you taught me how to use a handgun. I'd used rifles and shotguns in the Boy Scouts, but it was with one of our trips where I first first held a gun, and I was thinking back to that time uh, when you were writing in your book that uh, when you were very young, um, some Wehrmacht soldiers asked you to watch their rifles where they were having lunch or something, and uh, and you wrote, um, I sat on the steps and looked at the guns. They looked lethal as hell with a dull, oily film on them. I touched one and slid my finger down the cool side of its receiver. Here was the root and expression of all power. This was the divine right of kings. The popular will of democracy, de- democracies, and the proletarian might of the socialist republics.
0: Yes, well, in in the Soviet Union, of course, it was a capital offense to own the to own the firearm, and uh, only the NKVD and and the police went around armed. So. Uh, Naturally, I started viewing guns, you know, as as uh, as a sort as authority as as power as well, just about everything in life. So uh, then the war came along and did not do anything to disenchant me uh, to disprove that theory. So uh, I totally believe that that people should be armed in order to be able to uh, Withstand the governments.
1: With, is it fair to say that uh, you've seen so many systems fall apart and laws and things written on paper might not be dependable, but if you have a. a Absolutely. A, yeah.
0: Absolutely. I saw the Soviet Union fall apart. I saw the Third Reich fall apart. Um, and, the, and there was no one you could go to, there was only you.
1: Yeah. Uh and one of the most powerful sections is right at the end where you as a as a young man try out a hand grenade. Would you tell us tell yes. us about that?
0: Yeah, I think I was uh, 13 at the time and I was uh, uh at the bombed out rail yard and there was all this equipment scattered around from the war still the railroad cars sitting up on the end, huge bomb craters, and I put on a German helmet and picked up a couple of hand grenades and I was running from bomb crater to bomb crater playing at war and then I decided to throw one of the hand grenades. There was a a bit of a house left and uh, I had some unbroken windows in the cellar and I uh, Uh, That particular type of hand grenade, um,
1: long handle,
0: explosive head, you unscrew a cap and there's a ceramic ball attached to a silk or nylon cord and you yank out the cord which initiates a powder train and then you have four seconds or so until the thing goes off. So I unscrewed the cap and a ceramic ball falls out and I yank out the cord and pull back my arm to throw the grenade through the window. And at that point, I think I see somebody, some old woman moving behind the window. And after that, things become very dreamlike, very automatic. My arm goes back by itself. I don't seem to have any control over it and it snaps forward and uh grenade goes through the window and I put my face down in my arms and the thing goes off and I go running off.
1: does this make you uh, uh,
0: this make this makes me like everybody else in the war this suddenly makes yeah. me the equal of you know the German soldiers and the Russian soldiers and everybody else because by God now I've done what they did right
1: yeah and until then. Children sort of move around invisibly or... Up until then, I
0: was a slave. And now suddenly, you know, I'm a slave with a hand grenade.
1: Yeah, which is a big difference. Which is why you can't have guns in the Soviet Union. Right. Um, Okay. No religion uh, in in your upbringing or in your your town? Uh, Well,
0: no, because the Soviet government had arrested all the priests, right? Uh, religion being opium for the people and all that kind of thing. And um, I did not see a priest until I was in this camp where one showed up, Russian priest, and he asked me about God. (laughs) And I laughed at him (laughs) and proceeded to tell him the party line about religion being opium for the people. And he said, uh, why don't you let me baptize you? And I said, what's that? And he said, well, if you get baptized, you get a guardian angel to watch over you. And I said, is that like somebody from the NKVD? And uh, the guy said, well, you know, if you let me baptize you, I'll give you a piece of bread. Hell for a piece of bread, I would have let him fuck me. So uh, I said, sure, okay. And so uh, I got baptized.
1: There was a moment when, um, maybe you're in a bomb shelter or someplace, and there, there's some, anyway the danger is very imminent. And yes, there's
0: an old yes, yes. Yes, there's this. That was incredible. Um, I uh, was by myself then, and uh, at this one railway stop, I got off the train, and there was a family there who had known me and my parents. Uh, when we when we were at this uh, scientist camp, and uh, they said that well yeah there's this the, there's this place uh, about a kilometer away uh, where where they're trying to sort out our people so maybe you can find your family there so I went there, a bunch of Russians uh, house was a basement, and uh, my parents were not there. And so while I'm hanging around wondering whether I should go away, go back to the railway station or not, uh, along comes this formation of B-17s. It was a sunny day and we could see the planes very clearly and we could see their bomb base opening and we could see the bombs come falling out. The first ones were some kind of tracer bombs. They produced this uh, uh, dark brown smoke trail. And they were heading straight for the railway station. So we all go running into the basement and the bombs start going off and the windows go flying out and a bomb blasts you know, pick you right up off the ground and then smash you down again. And this old woman starts praying. So what the hell I figured it couldn't do any harm. So I start praying too. And this, uh, Russian guy says, hey, kid, you know, you're, you're acting like a cunt. If you don't stop this shit, I'll start praying, too. So I stopped.
1: And you admired him. You said "Yeah, yeah, yeah that made yeah, sense. Yeah. And absolutely, he he absolutely.
0: The man had balls. He had courage.
1: Yeah. And that's what counts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Whatever happened to your family? I know you were separated from them. Yes, and then I
0: found them and then we came over here Altogether. and my father, who had been a, a researcher of some note in the Soviet Union, got a job as a janitor at the supermarket or rather a department store. And Because in the Soviet Union, you know, the government assigned you a job and you kept that job forever. Uh, He never bothered to do anything else. He just stayed a janitor until the end of his life.
1: May I ask you about uh, how you got to the United States? This is beyond the scope of the book at this point.
0: Yes. uh, uh, A mutual friend knew somebody in San Francisco and persuaded the guy in San Francisco to sponsor us. And so we came over as displaced persons.
1: And you settled now? Is your mother and father and brother also settled in San Francisco? Yeah. And you, went to school here and became a entomologist. Right.
0: Um, yeah, I went to uh, uh, went to a Polytechnic High School in San Francisco, and then joined the army during the Korean War, and then went then worked in a factory for a couple of years in a machine shop, actually then went to UC Berkeley for seven years and uh, became a high school
1: teacher. Ah. Why Why entomology, may I ask?
0: Well, I started out in journalism. Then I switched over to history of art because that's where all the girls were. And then I had to take some... Uh, science classes for breadth requirements, so I took biology. I was sort of anti-biology because my father, of course, was a a biologist, and I hated him. So uh, suddenly I discovered I really liked biology, but biology had no practical applications. I mean, pure biology. Uh, So I switched over to entomology because... Uh, you could become a either a forest entomologist or an agricultural entomologist. Uh, there were plenty of jobs available in those areas.
1: And um, okay, that's very that's very practical. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, now, what does being a soldier yourself teach you about I just having
0: assume, a Should not discuss that, except to say I was a U.S. paratrooper. Whoa. The best of the best, all
1: that shit. Did it affect how you thought of your childhood back thinking of soldiers Uh, that you met as a child? uh, Well,
0: yeah, I became somewhat Germanic for a while and then woke up to the fact that I was becoming somewhat Germanic and went back to being human.
1: And then you came back uh, in the 60s and 70s and were a high school teacher for how long?
0: 40 years. 40 years. I took the job for one year. I had a bit of a falling out. I was going for a doctorate and had a bit of a falling out. And the dean of the School of Agriculture said, well, Alex, you know, Berkeley High are looking for somebody overqualified to teach their gifted kids. So why don't you take the job for a year and then come back? So I took the job for a year. And, uh, my feelings about kids versus adults came back, and I totally identified with the students rather than the administration and so I stayed for forty years
1: well i I'm very glad you did as a as a beneficiary of, of your teaching and not only do I remember biology but and, and shooting but you also taught us how to ferment <laughs> juice <laughs> <laughs> yes yes yeah I had the, I had the kids uh, chip in
0: and buy apple juice. Mm-hmm. And that was actually an experiment that uh, was in a, in, in a syllabus. We were supposed to do that. However, in the syllabus, we were supposed to ferment one test tube, and my class fermented several gallons. <laughs> and then I, would, I taught them how to filter the stuff, and then I would say, well, you know. And then I would give them a lecture on the evils of alcohol. Yeah, straight factual lecture about cirrhosis and all that other stuff. And then I would say that I find alcohol so repulsive that I can't stand the smell of it. So I'm going to walk out into the hallway for 15 minutes. And during those 15 minutes, I want you guys to pour all that stuff out <laughs> into the drain. And I would walk out into the hallway for 15 minutes and I would come back and all these kids would be sitting there with lopsided grins. <laughs>
1: And sure enough, it was
0: all gone. So clearly it, had it poured so it a <laughs> Oh, and then we built a still, and I started teaching them distillation. <laughs> and the stuff that came out, you could touch a match to it, and it would go up, you know, in a blue flame. I gave a pint of it to one of the school janitors, and the guy missed work for a week. And when he came back, he kept bugging me to give him more of the stuff, which I didn't have
1: by then. But he did not go blind. <laughs> right. <laughs> he did not go up in flame. So on the last page of the book, on the about the author, you say up till now, Alex Panasenko has been a slave laborer in Nazi Germany, a factory worker, a soldier in the US Army during the Korean War a graduate student in entomology at UC Berkeley, a science instructor at Berkeley High School, and a bartender. In only a few more years, he will be 100, at which point he plans to decide what to do with his life. In the meantime, he is biding his time cooking for his wife, Sally, and dog, Lucy, in Portland, Oregon. What do you plan to be when you grow up, Alex?
0: Well, (laughs) growing up seems like an incredible chore. You know, it's like Sisyphus pushing that rock up the hill, And uh, I do hope that by year 100, I'll get to the top and, you know, suddenly things will be revealed to me, which I do not know at the moment, and uh, I will know what to do with my life.
1: Do you find the world in the 21st century any better than the worst parts of the 20th? Have we learned
0: our lessons? I find it alien. I find it very difficult to relate to some things.
1: For example, or... Are people isolated in their individual?
0: Yes, isolated in their computers. I walked into a bar once and uh, there were all these young people sitting there and they were talking into little plastic boxes instead of to each other and I found that very strange.
1: Do you feel the uh, governments are any better? We have Probably twice the democracies, I imagine, that we had in 1933, maybe three times and the empires are vanishing. Or is well, it a facade? A dictatorship tells
0: people what to do. A democracy swindles people into what to do. At least ours does.
1: How how long would you like to live? Uh, pardon? How long would you like to live, ideally, with all medical... Ideally? Yeah. Well,
0: um, frankly, I don't much care. However, Sally, my wife, wants me to live forever. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to accommodate her.
1: Yeah. Do you think you'll write more? I have
0: written lots and lots of short stories, which Mm -hmm. what would happen, I would, you know, do something, witness something, and I would write it down as a short story. So they're all factual. I could string them all together, I suppose. However, uh, some of them, I think, would probably have to be published posthumously because they're sort of iffy, questionable. Morally wobbly. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Do you have um, a code you live by? Because I think there's a lot of codes you reject.
0: Yes, I do. I was, well, I don't know if you remember, but towards the end of a school year, I would tell my classes, I would say that the world exists only because you can see it, because you can feel it, because you can taste it, therefore, you're the world. You're sort of like God, because when you die, it all goes away. And yet, all of the adults, all of the governments who cannot prolong your life by one minute are telling you how to live that life. They're trying to take from you the only thing that you really have. So just remember that you're central. And they would all go, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, man, that's so deep. And then, of course, they did <laughs> forget it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, what have we forgotten? I've 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 said all my questions, and I I, I know we still have a few minutes, but uh, what do you think you would like your our audience to to know about? I think we have pretty much covered it all, haven't we? I think so. Uh, the book is called "The Long Vacation." The author is Alex Panasenko. It is a short book. It is a hundred. And 46 pages it's hard to put down it reads very quickly and I think it's $18 on Amazon it's from the Irish press yeah so this this book is uh, an, an, an amazing achievement is and it's your first book but you've been writing for 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 a long time
0: it's my first and only book yes
1: yeah Alex Penisenko, thank you so much for being part of the New Books Network and for talking with me this fine afternoon. Okay, Chris,
0: take care. Good talking to you.